Um, as you're turning there, I'll kind of remind us of the, the problem that Zechariah is confronting, or the Lord's confronting through Zechariah as he's preaching to, uh, to Judah. So, so God's people, they're back in the promised land. So they were in uh, exile in Babylon because God's gracious and kind. He brought his people back, right? But it's not like they thought it would be. So they come back to the promised land. It doesn't feel the same. And in large part, that's because the temple had not yet been built. So there were other things about it, but that was a particularly difficult thing. It's, it's just not the same. But God had been communicating to Zechariah that a day was coming when God's people will be in God's place under God's rule for, for all eternity. And, and that kingdom city, that future kingdom city will exceed all expectations. But, but again, when our passage this morning was first given to God's people, they, they didn't even have the temple rebuilt yet. So basically, they were people that were losing hope. It was easy to be cast down and, and to be discouraged. And we know what that's like, right? You know, ha haven't you experienced the strain of trying to maintain hope in God in the middle of a sinful world and in your sinful flesh? That's hard to do, to maintain hope in that kind of situation. We have several of you, you know, you helped us the past couple of days. We moved into a new house the past few days. And um, it's different making a big move as, as somebody in his 40s than it was when I was in my 30s. That feels, it feels different right now. Thankful that we were up so much and not sitting down, because if I sit down for a while the past couple of days and then I go to stand up, it's, it's difficult. But there were times where I'd be carrying something so heavy the past couple of days, and I felt like I was about to hit muscle failure. I thought, if this lasts one more second, this chest is going to be on the ground. I'm going to drop this thing. Well, sometimes it's hard to carry hope, right? In this life, even as a Christian, it's hard to carry hope. Well, in our passage, the Lord is encouraging his people that he is going to provide what they need, and he's going to do it by way of these two anointed ones, like this passage is going to talk about. The picture he uses here, these two olive trees. Now, we won't read the entire passage up front, but we will read the initial vision that's given to Zechariah. And we'll let that set up our passage. So hear the word of the Lord, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Okay, so, so here's how we're going to look at this passage this morning. That's the vision, and we're going to get into kind of the application of it in the rest of the passage. But here's how we're going to look at the passage. So first, we're just going to look at the symbolism here. And we're going to see what the symbols stand for, because that sets us up to understand the passage, but that's where we've got to start. So that'll be our first point. We're going to look at the symbolism. And then our second and third points will be the application of this vision to, to us as Christians today. In particular, that you should trust in God's anointed one. That's Jesus. That's going to be the second point. And then third, you should serve the church as one who is anointed. So, first point. This is the fifth vision the Lord has given to the prophet Zechariah. That's most of what we've looked at so far in this book, is these initial visions. Remember, there's eight of them. This morning, we're in the fifth vision that the Lord gives to, uh, to Zechariah. And, and through these visions, he teaches his people things through symbols. That's what these visions are all about. It's largely symbolic. So last week, 
We saw that through trust in Christ, our filthy clothes, which symbolize our sin, are taken from us. And then clean clothes are put on us. That represents Jesus's righteousness, right? So we see that symbolism there. Well, in this vision, we've got these two main symbols here in Zechariah 4. We've got a lampstand, and then we've got two olive trees. And the question we need to have answered is, what are these symbols? What or who do, do they stand for? So let's start with the symbol the text pretty clearly explains to us, which is the olive trees. So look again at the vision, verse 2. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. Okay, so these lamps, oil lamps aren't something that, that we really use today, but, but that was kind of the exclusive means by which people had light, you know, at night or when it was dark in, in the first century in the ancient Near East and the Old Testament before that. So there was, there was a container of oil and a wick sticking out of it, and you'd light the wick, and then it would, it would draw up that oil, right, until you ran out of oil. So the picture we're given here is, is that we've got this lampstand with seven lamps on it. So seven reservoirs of oil that are being fed by these olive trees. So olive oil, right? We've got these two trees next to the lamp. They're feeding oil into these lamps so they continue to burn and provide light. Okay, so, so who are these olive trees representative of? Well, we get a hint right away in our passage when Zechariah asks the angel about the vision. That's something that happens in these visions. Zechariah gets the vision. He's just like us where he thinks, not really sure what that means. He asks for clarification, and with different degrees of clarity, the angel tells him something. So look at verse 4. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, so you may be wondering how this answers the question, but I think Zechariah would have understood. So let's start with the idea of God's spirit and how that connects to oil. Because at the end there, he says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Okay, so what's that have to do with oil? There's a connection. In the Bible, the pouring of oil is regularly used as a symbol for God's pouring out the Holy Spirit. So it's all over the place in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Listen to how Acts 10 verse 38 talks about God sending the Holy Spirit on Jesus after his baptism. Acts 10 38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so anointed in their day, that was a verb that only went with oil. So there people would have that connection made. Oh, like oil is poured out on somebody, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus. Or listen to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. Lord willing, a passage that we'll hear uh, either Mark or Tim preach in the next couple of weeks. So this is talking about David, the greatest king of Israel. It's talking about David uh, and his situation after Saul was rejected. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, poured oil on him. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Okay, so in Zechariah's vision, the, the angels connecting this idea of oil 
He's connecting that to God's spirit in a way that's really common in scripture. So look again at the end of verse six. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, but, but that oil is coming through these two olive trees. So God's spirit is working through two people, two different olive trees. So again, who are these trees? Well, one of them's made really clear. Who, who do verse six and seven say God is working through? Well, it's this guy named Zerubbabel. So we see that there, verse six. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor my, by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O gray mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Okay, so God's promising his spirit is going to work through this guy named Zerubbabel. So who, who is he? Well, the book of Haggai tells us he was the governor of Judah. So when God's people come back into the promised land, the Persians, who were sort of the big world power of the day, they appoint Zerubbabel to be the governor over God's people, the governor over Judah. But we know Zerubbabel was also a descendant of King David, and he's in the line that leads to Jesus. So the genealogy in Matthew and in Luke both tell us that. They both list Zerubbabel. Okay, and why is he front and center in the book of Zechariah? What has God raised him up to do? Well, he's going to have a central role in rebuilding the temple. That's the main thing he's going to do. Look down at verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. Talking about the temple. His hands shall also complete it. Okay, so it seems pretty clear he's one of the olive trees. The Holy Spirit's going to work through him in a unique way to serve God's people. So one of those olive trees, Zerubbabel. But remember, there's a second one. So who is the second olive tree? Look down at verses 12 through 14. And the second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive tree, which are beside the golden pipes from which the gold oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Okay, so who's the second one? One's Zerubbabel, the governor, the leader. Who's the other one? Well, almost every commentator on this passage thinks it's Joshua. The high priest that we talked about in that vision from chapter three, where the dirty clothes were taken off him and then the righteous clothes, the clean clothes put on him. He's the only other leader besides Zerubbabel that's mentioned in the book of Zechariah. And then chapters three and six focus on him almost exclusively. In fact, turn a page over, Chapter 6, verse 13. And look what we're told there. It's talking about Joshua. Is what we're told. 6, chapter 6, verse 13. It is he, Joshua, who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. Okay, so it seems pretty clear. This is our second olive tree. We've got Zerubbabel, and then we've got Joshua, the high priest. And again, according to this vision, the Holy Spirit's going to work in them to produce good to these seven lamps in the lampstand. And the way that he's gonna work through them practically, the thing they're gonna do is build the temple. So, so, okay, that's the olive trees. Now, what do we make of the lamps? What are they symbolic of? And this one's a little bit more tricky. It's not quite as straightforward, but, but let's start out by reading the description of them one more time. Verse two, and he said to me, what do you see? 
I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. Okay, well, any Israelite that would have heard of a lampstand made of gold that had seven lamps on it, they would have thought the same thing. They would have thought about the lamp that was set up in the tabernacle after God had brought Israel out of Egypt. So remember that, that, uh, that word tabernacle, that's just talking about kind of that temporary temple that Israel had. That tent of meeting, that's going to end up being a, a temple that stays put that they build and is permanent. But at first, it's as Israel's traveling, it's like this big tent that they'd be able to take with them and then set up. So Pastor Tim taught on this a, a few months ago, but God gives the instructions in Exodus 25 for making a golden lampstand for the temple. And it's got seven lamps on it that light that tabernacle. In fact, I bet everybody has seen one of these. So the Hebrew word for lampstand is menorah. So if you've seen a menorah, you've seen the kind of lamp that we're talking about here. A gold, a gold lampstand that's got those seven individual stands on top of it. And remember, that's significant because the tabernacle was the space which Israel could meet with God and worship him. That's what happened at the tabernacle. It had to happen at a unique place where everything was mediated and there were sacrifices and a high priest. We talked about some of that last week. So, so the lampstand in this vision, it probably has something to do with God's people worshiping him in his presence. Because that's instantly what the Israelites would have thought about. Oh yeah, worship in the tabernacle when we're there worshiping the Lord. And remember again, the tabernacle and, and then the temple, that was the place where God's spirit came to rest on earth. His presence, it filled up the temple, just like oils poured through the olive trees down into these lamps like, like we see in this vision. Okay, so, so I think we're, we're ready to discern, at least in broad strokes, what the lampstand is. It looks like the lampstand represents God's worshiping people. So you've got the two olive trees, Zerubbabel and Joshua, the oil pouring into the lampstand. The lampstand is God's worshiping people, his people gathered together to worship him. And, and again, this makes sense when we think about the task God has given to Zerubbabel and Joshua. Like we just read in chapter 6, verse 13, God says it's Joshua who shall build the temple of the Lord. And then in verse 9 of our passage, talking again about the temple, we're told the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Okay, so we can, we can pull all of this together now, this symbolism of this vision. The oil is the Holy Spirit that God sends onto Joshua and Zerubbabel in, in a unique way. They're the two olive trees. God sends his Holy Spirit to work through these two servants to build the temple so that God's people can fully worship him, which is the lampstand. So hopefully that makes sense. That's what's happening here in this vision. And, and that temple is exactly what God's people needed. So this is a good task for him to give to these two servants. What they're doing is significant. And the reason it's so significant is because the thing we need more than anything else in the world is God. That's what we need. Humanity's greatest need is to have God's presence. And in the Old Testament, his presence was only available in his place, in the temple, before that in the tabernacle, as it's mediated through those ceremonies and, and sacrifices. And the people would have known what it felt like to be away from God's presence. You know, that this is the heels. They're back in the promised land. But before this, for 70 years, they were away from God's presence. 
as they were exiled in, in Babylon. So they, they understood what it, what it felt like. They would have known their need for God's presence. And maybe for us as Christians, may, maybe you remember that too. You know, many folks in this room don't remember really what life as a non-Christian was like, because praise the Lord, you were converted when you were pretty little, trusted in Jesus. It's what we pray for the kids in this church, by the way. Every time I pray through the directory, anybody that's got children, that's something I always pray. Lord, I pray that you'd save these kids and that they would never remember a day where they weren't trusting in Jesus. It's a good thing for us to, to pray for. But you might be in here and be like me where you did have a, a period of life before you were a Christian and you remember that. You remember what it was like to be away from the Lord. It's pretty horrible, isn't it? That's what Israel had experienced. 70 years of being away from, from God's presence. That's what Jesus experienced on the cross. We talked about this in our CG uh, CGG this morning, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he feels what it feels like all of a sudden, first time in his life, first time in eternity, where the son felt the father turn his back on him, because Jesus was standing in the place of sinners like us. He was experiencing God's wrath, and it's almost too much for him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the most pressing need for God's people is to have God's presence. And that's exactly what God's promising to do through Zerubbabel and Joshua. Verse 9 in our passage, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. So God's promising that the temple will be rebuilt. And, and then once that happens, he's telling the people, your discouragement will be turned to encouragement. Verse 10, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Okay, so God's saying, hey, if, if you've been sad about the meager progress that's happened, Israel, since you've been back in the land, don't worry. My, my servants are about to level the ground to rebuild the temple, this place where I will meet with you. Okay, so, so that's what this vision would have communicated to Zechariah and to the people of, of Israel in his day. But what does it mean for us? So, so what is this passage calling us to do this morning? Okay, two, two main things, and it's our second and third point. So first, trust in God's anointed one. And by that, we're talking about Jesus. Look at verse 14. You'll see there, the Lord calls Joshua and Zerubbabel. He calls them the two anointed ones. But as we've come to learn as believers, these servants of God in the Old Testament, they were always pointing forward to a better anointed one. Listen to Luke chapter 4, verse 18. This is when Jesus speaks at the synagogue, which was the place of corporate worship for the Jews of uh, Jesus' day. He's quoting from Isaiah. You might remember this. This is what he says. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. So Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. Acts 4.26, it characterizes Jesus as God's anointed. He's unique in that. He's uniquely chosen and anointed by the Lord. And, and just like God guarantees Joshua and Zerubbabel will complete the task of rebuilding the temple, God guaranteed that Jesus would perform his task too. Now that, that task it's not to give us as Christians an easy life in this world. That's not the task that God gave to Jesus. 
as much as in our flesh we would like for that to be the case. It's, it's his task isn't to make us wealthy or to keep you from getting sick or to, to make your kids Christians or, or your grandkids Christians. God hasn't promised that those things will happen to you. And he didn't send Jesus to make sure those things would happen. Those things could happen. We pray for those things. It's not guaranteed. But God does promise that if you're trusting in Jesus, you will get to heaven. That's the guarantee. If you're trusting in Christ, you will get to heaven. That's why the book of Jude ends with this doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's why Jesus says this in John 10, 28. I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus's mission, the reason he came was to grab hold of you as a Christian and to get you to the Lord. And, and it will happen. When it comes to building the temple, verse seven in our passage says, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. But listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 25. For Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, so just like Zerubbabel, they're told, hey, this guy's going to flatten the land in order to build the temple. It's the same thing with Christ. God promises that Jesus will, will knock over his enemies. He will level his enemies in order to save us, in order to get us to the Lord. So, so it's a promise and, and it will happen. We need those reminders. So the people in Zechariah's day, they were discouraged, you know, because they, they didn't have the temple with God's presence. They still had enemies. They still had members of their own people who weren't interested in the Lord. So even though they were saved in a way, they, they were still unsaved in another way. Their salvation hadn't fully come yet. And that's our exact situation as Christians. In a way, we're saved. Christ's blood is paid for our sins. We have the Spirit. We know the Lord. We have these promises. We're saved. But in another way, we're still in sin. We still sin. We're in sinful flesh. We still live in a world that's marred by sin. Our salvation is not yet completely here. And it's easy to be discouraged by that sometimes. Right? So verse 10 talks about God's people despising the day of small things. Well, that's kind of like us as Christians. We look around and this is sort of a day of small things. Salvation's not fully come yet, but there's hope. That's what Zechariah points the people to. Verse 10, the rest of it, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And see, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian or, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, don't you want that as you hear us talk about it? So to have the presence of the Lord, to be in a place where there's no more sin inside of you or outside of you. Isn't that a thing that you want? Well, that's a thing that's offered to us in the gospel. That's a thing that Christ came to give us. It's a thing that he overcomes and he does it by the cross. So I went to the cross was to pay for our sins. So all you have to do is trust in Jesus to put your full hope and confidence in Christ. And when we do that, the Christians in here can tell you, when we do that, he takes our sin on his shoulders and it's all paid for. 
and then we're made right in God's eyes. It's the good news of the gospel. So talk to me about that. If you're interested in thinking more about it, come to Christ. And for us as Christians, we understand that, that even though we do look around and it is the day of small things, we see sin affecting the world around us. We see it working inside of us. We can rejoice because one day Christ is coming back. Verse 10 again, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So this is our second point, first application for us. Trust in God's anointed one who is Christ. Put your hope in him. Okay, final application, final point this morning. Serve the church as one who is anointed. It's the final thing we're called to do. Serve the church as one who is anointed. So, so not only does the symbolism of this vision point to Jesus, it also points to New Testament local churches like Cornerstone Baptist Church and members of churches. Okay, so, so what does the New Testament teach us about how to interpret the vision of Zechariah 4? Well, as we've already done several times in our study, we need to go to the book of Revelation. So you could turn there if you'd like, you don't have to. But Revelation chapter 1, and then we're going to look at 11 a little bit, which was the New Testament reading. So in Revelation 1 verse 12, the Apostle John gives a vision of Jesus walking in the midst of seven golden lamps. You remember that? He's picking up the exact imagery that we have here in Zechariah. Now listen to who Revelation 1.20 tells us is the identity of these lampstands. Because we're told, this is Revelation 1, verse 20. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So remember, the beginning of Revelation, John's writing to seven particular local churches. Letters to the church in Ephesus, for example. These other churches are uh, uh, Thyatira and others. He's writing letters to particular churches. And in the vision that he's given, God uses the same symbol from Zechariah, that these are the lampstands. The lampstand represents these local churches. And again, that fits perfect, right? So, so where was the place of corporate worship in the Old Testament? It was the temple. That's where the lampstand was. Where's the place of corporate worship under the New Testament? It's local churches. So it makes sense that he would put those things together. The lampstands are churches. But see, here's the really significant part for us to see. If, if the lampstand is various local churches, like John just told us, lampstands are the seven churches, then who do you think the olive trees would be? So remember, the olive trees are the ones serving the lampstands, building them up. Okay, the lampstands are, in the New Testament, the lampstands are local churches. So who are the olive trees? Well, you might think the pastors, right? Or elders, those two terms are used synonymously for the same office in the New Testament. You might think the pastors, right? Well, what's interesting is that's not what the New Testament teaches us. So Revelation, it doesn't just pick up the imagery of the lampstand. It also picks up the imagery of the two olive trees. You might remember this, but it's in Revelation 11. Charlie Bird read it just a little while ago. This is Revelation 11, verse 3. And the Lord says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands 
that stand before the Lord of the earth. So do you see what the Lord just did in this vision in Revelation 11? What he did was he took something that in Zechariah, these two symbols that are different. So the olive trees are the leaders, Joshua, Zerubbabel, and then the lampstand are God's people as they worship him. Two separate things in Zechariah. But what God just did in Revelation is put those things together. He says the olive trees are the lampstand, and the lampstand is the olive tree. He puts them into one. So whatever the lampstand was pointing toward, that's the same thing the olive trees were pointing toward. And remember in Revelation 1.20, we just saw that the lampstand are local churches. That's who the olive trees are. It's the same thing. So, so just to bring this home to us, the lampstand in Zechariah 4 is for our purposes, Cornerstone Baptist Church. The olive trees in Zechariah 4, 4 are Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, this is a change from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the olive trees were those special leaders. In fact, you may have noticed that when you're reading the Old Testament. It was only the leaders in the Old Testament that really had the Holy Spirit. Have you noticed that before? Keep an eye out for that. Interesting, isn't it? It was the leaders of God's people that had the Holy Spirit, but the rest of God's people didn't have God's Spirit. That's why the leaders were anointed in a unique way. So kings and priests in the Old Testament, they were anointed with oil at the beginning of their appointment to those offices, but, but all the people weren't. No, it was just the leaders. Remember, that anointing with oil was a symbol pointing to anointing of the Holy Spirit. So the leaders were the ones with the Spirit, and then being empowered by that Spirit, they served the body, right? By pointing the people to the Lord, encouraging faith and obedience, building the people up with the promises of God. So it was kind of them that did it uniquely. It's interesting. It's kind of the same with music. So if you look at the Psalms, look other places where it talks about temple worship, it makes it clear that God's spirit would work through the musicians in a unique way. So all the people are there singing, but they're being led by these ones that the spirit's working through. That's why in part, when you read the Psalms and you read about all these instruments, right? Clashing cymbals and loud horns and that sort of thing. But then you get into the new covenant and what does it say Jesus did after the Lord's Supper? It says he and his followers sang a hymn, presumably a cappella, like we did this morning. Well, under new covenant worship, that's just fine. Because what's focused on isn't those instrumentalists like the special leaders and then everybody else is down here. No, now it's the voices of everybody that's serving everybody. Interesting. And in God's providence, we got to do that this morning. But in the Old Testament, the leaders are the ones empowered by the Holy Spirit. They're serving everybody else. But see, the Lord made this promise throughout the Old Testament that one day all of his people would have the Holy Spirit. The whole community, not just the leaders. As part of what, what was happening in Acts 2 and Pentecost, God's fulfilling that promise to pour out his spirit on all of his people from the least to the greatest. So, so you see, at, at Cornerstone Baptist Church, it's not just the pastors that have the Holy Spirit. Every member of this church has the Holy Spirit. And here's the upshot of this truth. It means that every member of this church can, can minister to the church. That's the main idea. 
every member of this church can minister to the church. Because what's our passage remind us is the one necessary ingredient to perform God's work among God's people. Look at middle of verse six. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So if you're a Christian, then God can minister through you to every other member of this church because of the spirit. In fact, this is why to, to cite another verse from Revelation. In Revelation 1 verse 6, John says God has made us a kingdom of priests, right? So under the old covenant, there were a handful of priests and then everybody else, not in the New Testament. After Christ, all of God's people have the spirit. We are all priests. Every member of God's people is a priest. Every member is able to give spiritual encouragement and aid to any other member of the church. So, so now that we realize this, now that we understand our, our church isn't just the lampstand, we're also the olive tree that ministers to the church, to the lampstand. Let's close by looking at the New Testament passage that teaches this really explicitly. It was our congregational reading this morning. It's Ephesians 4. So flip over to Ephesians 4. It's page 918 if you've got one of our hardback Bibles open. Ephesians 4, verse 11. Pastor Charlie read it earlier. We read part of it as a congregation. This is what Paul says. Ephesians 4, verse 11. And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the pastor, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Okay, so, so a couple of significant things. God's people will still have leaders, even after Christ. Even when everybody has the Holy Spirit, they're still leaders. So Paul's moving through, he's preaching the gospel. People get saved. What's he do? He establishes a local church, and he institutes elders. He puts leaders in the church right off the bat, right? There's still going to be leaders. However, Pastor Charlie pointed this out. Notice what the job is for those leaders. Verse 11, again, Ephesians 4, verse 11. And Christ gave these leaders, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the job of, of the pastor, the job of these shepherds is to equip the members for the work of ministry. It's actually every member of the church who's responsible to minister. And what is the ministry that God gives to the members of local churches like Cornerstone Baptist? Well, verse 13 talks about the building up of one another in the knowledge of the Son of God. Okay, so all of this boiled down, we want to help one another know Jesus better. That's what Ephesians 4 says. The elders of this church, our job is to try to equip all of the members for us to help one another know Jesus better. That's your job description. There's multiple job descriptions for a member of a New Testament church, but this is one of them. Your job description, if you're a member of this church, is to help your fellow members know Jesus better. And obviously that, that includes your own growth in the knowledge of Christ, right? You can't teach somebody something that, that you don't know yourself. Now, really quick as we close, this, this isn't just talking about head content, right? So my kids are getting older. I help them study for tests all the time. I know how this works. 
the, the geography test that Jude had last Thursday, he got a 100 on that test, praise the Lord. If I ask him that content in a week, he's not gonna know it, right? You study, you, you, get, you get an A on the test and then you forget those things. It's not that kind of mere head knowledge. No, when it talks about knowing Christ, it's talking about relational knowledge, which includes knowing who he is, knowing about him, knowing his word. Of course, it's, it's more than that. It's having communion with Christ. So, so in obedience to our passage this morning, we should commit to do, to do two things as we think about this final point. So, so know Jesus better yourself and, and then help your fellow members know Jesus better. That's how we can serve one another as, uh, as ones who are anointed by God to, to pursue this task. So, so first for you, start by pursuing for yourself to know Jesus better. And that starts in God's word. You gotta read God's word. That, that's the unique place where we come to know Christ. So read the Bible. If you're in the Old Testament, figure out how what you're reading relates to Christ. It all does. It all points to Jesus. It's the question you wanna answer is how does this passage point to the gospel of Christ? So, so be in God's word. But another way to, to know Jesus better is, is to, to more fully recognize your own sinfulness. The moment we realize how sinful we are, the bigger the cross will be to us. We'll realize how good the gospel is, the more sinful we understand we are. So we wanna grow in understanding our sinfulness. That's part of the reason why we have this prayer of confession, right? We're reminding one another how sinful we are. We're reminding one another why we need the cross. Okay, so we want to we want to grow in our knowledge of Christ in that way, but but then we don't just want to sit on that and grow ourselves. We want to help our fellow members know Jesus better. Just a couple practical things about that that we can pursue that first. Pray through the directory for one another, and when you pray for one another, pray that that brother or sister would know Christ better. Probably the best prayer you can pray for anybody, right? What I just said, I'm pretty positive is true. The best prayer you, can, prayer you can pray for anybody is that they would either know Jesus or come to know him better. But what percentage of our prayers is actually taken up with that most important prayer that I just said? A lot of times it's not much, is it? A lot of times we're focused much more on, oh Lord, I pray their HVAC, this fix wouldn't be expensive, or that their kid would get well soon, or that this surgery would go well. Great things to pray for, commanded to pray for those things. It's a joy to pray for those things. But it just reminds us how much more we should be praying that we would all grow in our knowledge of Christ. So pray for one another. You can be an olive tree in that way, right? That's serving, that's pouring oil into the church by praying for one another. But also have conversations about Jesus with one another. So offer to one another what you've been learning about Christ through his word. Offer, uh, offer what you got from the sermon the previous Sunday. Offer to one another how the Lord has grown you and been merciful to you this past week. And ask others what they've been learning about Jesus lately. We're supposed to serve one another in that way. So if you're a Christian, you're, you're one of the Holy Spirit anointed olive trees and your church is the lampstand. That's the main idea here. So pour yourself out for the good of the church. Verse two, and he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. 
And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for this vision. We're, we're thankful and humbled and challenged by the fact that, that these olive trees, they are us. And, and that's, there's some fear in that. I think many of us, if we could pick, would say, no, I'd, I'd rather there be a handful of leaders that are the olive trees, but we just get to be the lampstand and just kind of be poured into. But Father, for us as, as Christians, you've given us your spirit. We've been anointed. And our job now, as long as we're on this earth, before Christ returns, is to, to pour oil into our brothers and sisters, among other tasks. But that's one of the central ones. So Father, we pray we'd be faithful to do that. Help us as individual members of this church to not shirk that responsibility, but, but to see it as, as one of our chief tasks to build up our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that we would be faithful to pray for one another. Pray that you would deepen our brothers and sisters in their knowledge of Christ. We pray that we would have conversations with one another about the goodness of the Lord and what Christ has done for us on the cross and how that impacts us. We pray that our church would, would be characterized by this kind of member-to-member -member ministry where it would be happening all around us. Father, we're so thankful for the goodness of the gospel and that all of us have been made priests because of having the Holy Spirit and of knowing you through Christ. We pray that you would grow us in these things, that we would marvel at the goodness of the gospel. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.